forgot my iPad, so I have to pull a gym today and open up my laptop up here. Mine doesn't fold all the way around like his does. Every time he does that, I think he's broken it. <laughs> Good morning, church. What a joy to be together. We are, um, we're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount today. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be finishing out Matthew chapter 6 today. We're kind of on uh, the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount. If you're in this space today, you don't have a Bible with you. I say this every week, but we really believe in the importance of access to God's Word, so I'd encourage you to snag one of the house Bibles under one of the chairs, and if you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, to take one of those home. Um, we're talking today about something that I think is going to be very real and very heavy for some of us in the room today. Essentially, we're going to talk about Jesus' teaching regarding how the kingdom of God interacts with our worry, our fear, and our anxiety. We're going to see pretty plainly today that Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is in fact the answer to our anxieties. Now, my sincere desire is that that statement is actually hopeful for you, right? Like, we all have fears, we all have worries, we all have anxieties, and we're going to see in our text today, guys, that Jesus, Jesus has compassion for the anxious. His compassion for the downtrodden. He is with you in your worry. Christ is with you in the sorrow and doubt and despair that continual experience of anxiety and worry and fear creates. God is with you. He's for you. Beloved, the kingdom of God really is the cure for our anxieties. Now, as I say that, I understand that in, in our time and in our place, for some of us, that is a painful thing to hear. According to my you know, 10-minute internet Google search this week, it's roughly 20% of adult Americans that have been diagnosed with clinical levels of anxiety. That's not the amount of people who experience anxiety and intense anxiety symptoms like panic attacks or irrational fears or depression and sorrow and doubt and despair that come about as a result of continual fear and anxiety. That's certainly not the amount of people who use anti-anxiety medication. That's the amount of people who have been officially diagnosed with clinical levels, life-debilitating anxiety. 20% of the adult population of the United States. That's intense. I was a youth pastor for a little over 10 years. I started youth ministry in the aughts. Is that how you say that decade? 2000 through 2010? What is the ought part? I don't, 2000 two, two ought eight. Anyway, I started, I started my uh, ministry career uh, vocationally in the aughts. And I, was, I worked at a larger church and, and was a youth pastor, relatively large student ministry. And one of the things I remember and seeing this shift culturally in the United States is, you know, when, when you're a youth pastor and you take kids to summer camp, right, like, you got to figure out all their specific needs. So if a kid has a food allergy, you got to make sure it's communicated to all the leaders and the people in the kitchen. If a kid has a medication, you have to make sure uh, you've connect, connected with parents, you know how it's distributed, what the schedules, all those things. It's taking care of all these kids for a week, right? Now, when I first started in youth ministry and we would go to summer camp and we would, in a larger church, we'd be taking 75 to 100 kids to camp. I might have three or four kids who have some kind of mental health medication, anxiety, antidepressant that they're taking. And in the 10, 10 years in when I finished student ministry, I'm not exaggerating when I say that had flipped from like five, six kids out of a 100-kid trip to 90% of however many kids were coming with us, regardless of the number. Nine out of 10 kids that were hanging out with us were dealing with something medication-wise. Because we live in a time where anxiety, and not just anxiety, but the kind of anxiety that is so life-dominating that it requires medical intervention is becoming the norm, right? And I know that as I say that, several of us in the room deal with that. And maybe you're medicated, and maybe you see a counselor, and maybe you're not. Maybe you just have panic attacks every now and again, right? It's very common, and, 
And for those of us who struggle with this kind of thing continually, to hear your pastor go up front and just say, hey, Jesus says God's the answer for your anxiety, like that can be frustrating more than it is helpful, right? To be like, oh, really? Wow, cool. Jesus is the answer. I wish I knew that, right? Like, oh, thanks for this new information. I just need to Jesus, and then I'll stop worrying all the time. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to stick with me today. Because I get, guys, I've been there and I get why that might be your gut response. But I promise you guys, like Christ chooses to speak more bluntly into our experience of fear and worry and anxiety than he does most issues of human life. There's a reason for that. And the reason is your Jesus cares for you in your fear, cares for you in your worry, He cares for you in your anxiety, and there genuinely, genuinely, beloved, is hope for you in the gospel of Jesus. Stick with me today. Let's let's jump into this. Before we read our text, I want to remind us where we've been in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount in general. So if you remember, uh, Matthew as a book is a really kingdom of God-centric book. This phrase we use in Christianity, the kingdom of God, is one of the main themes of the entire book of Matthew. This idea that something about Jesus's earthly ministry and his eventual return is ushering in this literal rule and reign of God on creation. This is a big theme of Matthew. And the chunk we're in currently, the Sermon on the Mount, is a deeper exploration of that theme. The entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon on the ethics of the kingdom. Jesus is saying, this is how kingdom people live. This is what life will look like in the kingdom of God. And if you think about our time in the sermon, we go through some really interesting themes. Jesus launches this sermon by saying, hey, listen, God blesses people who you don't think deserve it. Right? If you were to summarize the Beatitudes into like one sentence, that would be it. You don't have good eyes on who God is blessing. He blesses the people you don't expect. And then he steps into this section where he says, hey, God's word doesn't point to legalism and pushing people out. God's word actually points to the kingdom. He takes this section where he goes through and he shows them how their culture has interpreted scripture incorrectly and kept people or pushed people away from the kingdom versus pointing them toward it. And then he goes into a section where he says, look, in the kingdom, that your righteous living, the good, holy things you choose to do, you're not doing them for yourself. You're not doing them for others. And in the kingdom, people live righteously for God, for his glory, because of their relationship. And God sees your motivation. He sees your heart. He sees into your depths. And then you get to our text. And here, Jesus is going to talk about how our fears and worries And ultimately, ultimately, our anxieties, right? How these things, these things are resolvable in the kingdom. The kingdom actually allows you to engage them because Christ is trustworthy. There's something about Jesus' own character. The king who goes with the kingdom, right? The kingdom of God living means living under the rule, reign, presence, authority of Christ. There's something about the character of Christ, his trustworthiness, that speaks into, in a very real way, our experience of fear, our experience of anxiety, our experience of worry. Because he's trustworthy, we can trust him. We can trust his provision. We can simply seek the kingdom every day. We can live and trust God for the rest of the details. That may seem like a dismissing sentence. You just live every day and you trust God for the details. But guys, there is something there. If you struggled with anxiety in painful ways in your life, stick with this. I believe God has an amazing truth for us today. So pray with me, and then we're gonna work through this text chunk by chunk. Father, we just ask today that you would give us quiet and clear eyes and ears to hear from you. God, whatever whatever pressures in this moment are pushing on us, distracting us, God, whatever patterns we live into that we struggle with that are, that, are, that are telling us to doubt, to check out, to not listen, God, I pray that you would cut through all of that today, that you would give us a quiet, clear presence to hear from you afresh, Lord. Father, we need you. We need you to be our discipler. 
We need you to be our hope. We need you to illuminate the text to us. So God, we pray these things in your name. Amen. So depending on your Bible translation, these, this chunk of text may be divided into two subheadings, but, but really this whole piece here of 19 through 34, this is one progression of thought Jesus is giving us. It's kind of set up in two sections. So it starts with Jesus talking about money and treasure, and then he goes into these word images about God's provision. But it's really one progression of thought. So let's, let's kind of work through this chunk by chunk and see what we see. Starting in verse 19, we read this. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus starts this section and starts his progression of thought by calling out our treasure. He gives us this this gut check asking, what treasure do you want? Do you want earthly treasure or kingdom of God treasure? And guys, Jesus makes such a good point for us here. Earthly treasure is not the securing safety that it seems to be. You see, that at the, at, at the base of it, that is what most of us are actually seeking when we seek money and stuff, when we seek treasure. We're seeking comfort and security, right? That's what, that's what lies behind a fat bank account and a nice house and a good car is comfort and security. We want to have enough stuff so that we don't have to worry about stuff, right? I'm gonna say stuff like 15 times in the next 10 seconds, so I just wanna prepare you for that mentally. We wanna have enough stuff that we don't have to worry about stuff, but guys, stuff can't cure your worry about stuff, right? You can't have enough stuff to fix your stuff problem. And the reason is because stuff rots. And by the way, it doesn't matter what the stuff is. Stuff just doesn't last. Stuff isn't secure. Food rots, clothes disintegrate, metal rusts, economies tank. You cannot surround yourself with enough things, enough stuff to somehow protect, shield completely yourself and the reality of suffering in this world. Stuff cannot shield you from the reality of the curse of sin. Can't keep you from suffering. And you go, I don't know, I'm pretty sure it can. I'd rather have a house than be homeless. Yes, absolutely, amen, rock and roll. That's wonderful. We should care about those sorts of things. But also, like, you have no control over that house. You may buy a house, then find out a week later it's condemned because of termite damage. You may live in that house 20 years and then a tornado knocks it down. You don't have control over those things. And if you don't agree with me here, go back today and read the first three chapters of the book of Job. Stuff can't protect you from the reality of suffering in a broken and sinful world. It's not strong enough. It's not capable enough. But treasure in heaven, that, Jesus says, treasure in heaven is permanent. It doesn't rot. No one can take it. It's secure. So it kind of leads you to go, okay, so then what is heavenly treasure? What's he talking about, right? Because I've got eyes on earthly treasure, right? I know what that looks like. What is Jesus talking about when it comes to heavenly treasure? Well, the question there is just what in your life is actually eternal? What can you store up? What can you give yourself over to that actually lasts into the forever realm. I think there's several things that fall within this category. When you're, I mean, an obvious one would be right, like when, you're, when you're missional, when you're evangelistic and you share the gospel with those who need Christ, guys, that is eternal treasure. That's, that's more brothers and sisters at the wedding feast of the Lamb. How about holy living, right? Growing in your own holiness is moving your soul closer to its eternity, right? If, if, if when you get to heaven, anything that's sinful, anything that's wrong is removed, that means anything in you that is sinful and wrong will be removed. So when you grow in holiness now, you're getting ahead of the game, right? You're, you're, you're preforming your soul towards what its eternity is gonna look like. That's 
an eternal treasure, killing sin, fighting idols. Eternal treasure, guys. Living your life to glorify God. And by the way, notice that Jesus doesn't discourage you from collecting treasure, right? I mean, and I think that piece is important because I think there's just kind of this little bit of a cultural push for us to be like, I don't know, treasure seeking sounds like the kind of selfish, bad thing bad guys do, right? But Jesus simply gut checks you about which kind of treasure you're seeking. I mean, you can live as your own personal smog, hoarding the things of this world, even while they rot away and don't last. Anyone catch that reference? That was a Hobbit reference. Thank you. Mm, My people are in the room. (laughs) Or you can seek the eternal treasure of the kingdom of God. And guys, you know, Revelation, the book of Revelation has this really cool image with regards this, in regards to this heavenly treasure. In Revelation 4, in, in John's vision of what eternity will look like, he gives this image as the followers of Jesus are entering into eternity. All of their righteousness, they receive all their heavenly treasures. All the work they did for the kingdom, all the killing their idols, all the growing in holiness, all the sharing of the gospel, all the pouring themselves into the life of the church, all the serving others, like all those things come back on these followers as they enter into eternity and they have these crowns of glory placed upon their head, covered in jewels, representing the work they did to pour themselves into the life of the kingdom in their earthly life. It's this really beautiful image, and you, you kind of get this initial like, oh, cool, yeah, right? Like, people kind of get what's coming to them. You seek the kingdom, and like, you get recognized for it. But immediately, guys, immediately in the text, the followers of Christ take off their crown, and they lay it at the feet of Jesus, and they say, this is your glory. And there's just this stack crowns and jewels at the feet of Christ at the entrance of heaven. It's a beautiful image. A beautiful image because it shows you guys, just as Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart is. Jesus gut checks you on your treasure because your treasure shows you where your heart is. If you treasure this world, if you treasure the stuff of this world, if you genuinely deceive yourself into believing you can out-comfort the curse in your life, then the world will have your heart. But if you treasure the kingdom, even the greatest rewards you get, you will lay to the feet of Christ because Christ will have your heart. Now, This text keeps going, and on first glance, it seems like Jesus is changing subjects, but he isn't. So read this with me, starting in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If the eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? This is an interesting chunk of text that, by the way, has puzzled commenters for a long time, and not because of the meaning, but because Jesus is using Um, several figures of speech. He's doing a couple things simultaneously that just really easily get lost in translation. So he's using a very particular word image that would have made sense in the Aramaic. And then using that word image, building off of that, he actually does a play on words and makes a pun. But again, only makes sense for those who are in the room speaking Aramaic. It's easy for us in the English to read this verse as just kind of this cryptic thing about spirituality, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, light versus dark. Yeah, I get that. But to do that, it not only misses Jesus's precise point, it actually breaks the unity of this text because you feel like Jesus is giving you this really good point and then he switches subjects, right? He was talking about money and treasure and how we trust him. And then he goes off on this weird, mysterious thing about dark and light. It's actually a continuation of thought. So, so, so follow, follow me with this for just a second to, to kind of help us put this together. As best scholars can tell, there are two figures of speech interacting here. The first one is this. Jesus uses this image as the eye of the lamp of the body. Now, the meaning here is actually really simple. It's just the idea that eyes are the method by which the body receives and interacts with light, right? Without eyes, a body is blind. This is a strange way for Jesus to say that. If you don't have eyes, you'd be blind. Like that would be an easier way to say it, right? But but he says it this way because it sets up this second kind of wordplay he's doing. See, on the surface, what Jesus says is, hey, you need eyes to experience light. So if you have good eyes, your whole body benefits from the gift of light. If you have bad eyes, your whole body misses out on light. But this is where this gets interesting. You see, in the Aramaic, 
Jesus isn't actually using the opposite terms for good and bad the way they're normally paired together. And here's what I mean by that. Even in English, we have terms that mean opposite, but we, we have multiple synonyms of terms that mean opposites. But we, for whatever reason, choose to pair certain ones together, right? Ones that sound more official and medical, ones that sound more precise, ones that sound more beautiful. Like We naturally pair them off, basically kind of how they fit. And Jesus mix and matches here. Like This would be like, in English, you might pair healthy and unhealthy and then pair thriving and blighted, right? But you wouldn't cross them because they just don't seem like they go together. But Jesus crosses them here. The term he uses for good eyes and the term he uses for bad eyes are technically opposites, but they're not the opposites that would normally be paired together. And at this point you're going, hey, I really don't care about this level of grammar. Why is this important? Because these two phrases he uses, good eyes and bad eyes, were existing figures of speech in his day that had a secondary meaning. And it allows Jesus to make what essentially amounts to a pun here to prove his point. So in the way he's speaking, the the phrase good eye was a phrase that meant someone who is singularly minded, hyper-focused, pushing all things away. And someone, the phrase he uses that we read as bad eye was a phrase that was used to mean someone who is stingy with their money and unkind to people in need. So what Jesus ends up saying here is someone who is singularly minded, someone who is hyper-focused is like someone who can see, but someone who's stingy and unkind with money, they're like a blind person. Now that shows you how this connects to the larger thought progression Jesus is making. Because what he essentially says is, hey, look, be careful how you store up your treasure. Because the treasures you seek here on earth, they're not permanent, they can't protect you, they don't do what you think they can do. Instead, you need to be seeking kingdom treasure, eternal treasure, treasure that if you think about it in the moment, doesn't seem tangible enough to, be, to matter, but actually it's the treasure that really matters. You need to seek that because wherever, whatever treasure has your heart, like it has your heart. Whatever treasure you're seeking, that's where the depth of your person is. If you're seeking this world, the world has your heart. If you're seeking the kingdom, the kingdom of God has your heart. And listen, guys, listen. This is important. Because those who are stingy with their money, storing up treasures on earth, they're like a blind man. It's the people who zone in their focus, who are singularly minded. Those are the people who can see And read on with me to verse 24. For no one can serve two masters. Since either he will hate the one and love the other, he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The person who can see, the person who is single-minded, is the person who is seeking and trusting the kingdom rather than earthly goods. And guys, Jesus drops a bomb here that is important for us as modern Western Christians. He says, you can't do both. You can't. You may think you can. You may convince yourself you can, but you cannot serve two masters. In a fundamental sense, in a fundamental sense, you cannot give your ultimate allegiance to two beings. Because at some point, their desires, their purposes will run contrary to one or the other and you will have to choose. One will get preeminence over the other. The actual phrase he uses here in the, in the Greek of Matthew is, he says, you can't, a slave can't have two masters. Someone has to have the final say. And by the way, where he says here, like you'll hate the one, love the other. That actual phrase in his day, it meant preference. You'll preference one and not the other. Because guys, that's how it works. You cannot have two masters. Eventually one will have to give way to the other. One you'll be devoted to and one you'll despise. What this means, beloved, is that the aims, the purposes of the kingdom of God and the aims and purposes of the cursed and broken world are at odds. They don't go together. They're incompatible. If you're going to seek the treasures and comforts of earth, 
If you're gonna trust in the treasures and comforts of earth to meet your needs, to protect you from suffering, you are going to do so at the exclusion of the aims of the kingdom of God. Now listen, listen. You may be able to jet along that line. You may be able to ride that fence for a little while. But at some point, at some point, the world and the kingdom of God won't sink up and you'll have to pick what matters more to you. What treasure has your heart? If you are seeking the comforts of this world, if, if protect, using stuff to protect yourself from the reality of the curse, if that is a driving force for you, at some point, that's gonna run right in the face of the purposes of the kingdom of God in your life. You know why? The kingdom of God says cross now, crown later. The kingdom of God says eternity matters more than right now. The kingdom of God says the things of this world are passing away. You are a sojourner. You're passing through. Your home is awaiting you. The kingdom of God says you are not a citizen of this world. Your citizenship is in heaven. The kingdom of God says, man, take the resources you have here and now and use them for the kingdom. Remember Jesus' parable of the shrewd manager who wastes all the money to make friends? Jesus says, use earthly stuff for kingdom aims. Because that does not gel. It's not gel with a mindset that says no stuff exists to increase the buffer between my comfort and the reality of suffering. which bridges us perfectly to what Jesus says next in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't the life more than food? Isn't the body more than clothing? Because Jesus is purposefully connecting these two ideas together. All right, the, the, no, the therefore, right? I say this a lot, but whenever you see a therefore in scripture, you have to stop and back up and see what it's there for, <laughs> Right? Jesus starts this piece about worry and anxiety, this relatively famous passage, by saying, therefore. Well, the therefore is what he just said. The therefore is, hey, gut check yourself on what treasure you're seeking because the, the aims of this world and the aims of the kingdom, they are at odds. Therefore, therefore, don't worry about your life. That's a weird connection, but you need to stick with this, right? Therefore, Jesus is connecting the idea about treasure and single-minded devotion to the kingdom to his teaching about anxiety and worry. And the reason, guys, is because money is a terrible master. Because earthly treasure rots away because you ultimately have to choose whether you want to seek the kingdom or seek this life. Because those things, because of those things, right, Jesus says, don't worry about this life. Don't worry about food. Don't worry about clothes. Life is more than stuff. Life is more than material needs. And guys, remember something here. Jesus isn't talking to wealthy white American Christians when he gives this sermon. Jesus is sharing this with an audience for whom lack of food and clothing was a real day-to-day -day issue. We, cannot, we can easily forget this because of our context of wealth. Yeah, life is more than food and clothes is easy to say when you have a stocked fridge and you own dozens of changes of clothes. But Jesus is playing hardball. He is saying the same idea. He's saying the, the eternal kingdom of God is more valuable than the necessities of life so that you don't need to worry about them. He's saying that to people who are starving. He's saying that to people who live in real danger, in real need, for whom often the only thing they can give energy to is where am I gonna get a meal? How am I gonna clothe my family? Where are we gonna find shelter? To them, Jesus says, look, look, life is more than your material needs. Life is more than that. The kingdom of God is more important than that. Guys, that is a, that is a fundamental challenge to the way you experience life right? Jesus is not pulling punches here. There's something big in what he's saying. Read on with me in verse 26. Consider the birds of the sky. 
They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add a moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? Oh, you of little faith. And now Jesus gives us these several images to kind of back up this idea. The two images are essentially the same, right? He talks about how birds don't work, but God feeds them, and flowers are shockingly fleeting, and yet God clothes them. Jesus essentially says here, look how God takes care of the natural world. He's a caretaker for the birds and the flowers, and you are so much more important to God than them. Now, guys, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I'm going to stop here because I think it connects for us, and I think it's important. Because this is one of the most foundationally important theological truths that church folk have a tendency to ignore and disbelieve and then not even realize it. Beloved, you need to hear this today. I don't care where you are in your faith. You are important to God. Beloved, I'm going to repeat that. You are important to the God of the universe. You. Now listen, as I say that, I know you're a sinner. I know you're worse when you're not around me or you're not around church people. I know that if I knew the inner thoughts of your sinful person, I would be shocked. I know that you struggle and fail in your holiness. I know. You're still important to God. And he knows that far better than I do. But beloved, you are important to him. He considers you. Think about that. The God of the universe, he considers you. I mean, how much thought have you given today to the individual microbes that live on the surface of your bathroom counter? But God considers you. He thinks about you. He loves you. He notices you. Beloved, it does not matter how bad you are at being a Christian. Remember Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. You are important to God. This is why he cares for you. He cares for birds and flowers. You are more important to him than them. And Jesus contrasts these images of God's provision with the futility of anxiety and worry. Who of you, by your worry, can add a minute to your life? Guys, worry is futile. Anxiety is fruitless. It takes so much energy and it both accomplishes nothing and distracts you from the truth of God's caretaking provision for you. Now, I'm guessing as I say that, that most of you who struggle with anxiety and fear and worry already know that. I know it doesn't help anything, I would stop if I could. It just shows up. It just bubbles up in my person. Well, keep reading. Verse 31. So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. So now Jesus brings it home and as if he already hasn't been blunt, like he's blunt. Don't seek the things of this world. Don't look for earthly treasures that rot. It's important to note, by the way, this doesn't mean that you like, shouldn't work hard and provide for your family and plan for your future, right? But rather, that you shouldn't worry and fret while you do so. There's a major difference between laboring in this broken and uncertain world from a place of trust versus a place of anxiety and fear. That's what Jesus is pushing at here. Jesus says this kind of worry is for non-believers. It's not for you. The Gentiles seek after these things. You are different. Now, if you're like me, and you have a, a long-standing relationship with anxiety, you might be getting frustrated with Christ at this point. Don't worry seems like a terrible solution for someone struggling with anxiety, yeah? I don't know, I just, I have these panic attacks and I'm really scared to leave my house. And I, oh, you, sh you should not do that. Oh, thanks, <laughs> That's, 
That, that, that doesn't seem like it's helpful. Jesus, if I could just stop worrying, because that's what Gentiles do and I'm not a Gentile, I would have done that already. But Jesus doesn't just say to stop worrying. He says it alongside this bit about how worry is a thing for non-believers. And I want you to consider this phrase. For non-believers, all they have is the uncertainty of the cursed world. That's all they have. Guys, have you looked at the cursed world within which we live? Suffering is everywhere. The curse touches everything. There's nothing you can do to shield yourself from the reality of suffering. Anxiety, worry, fear, and the accompanying sorrow and doubt and despair that go with that, those are the normal reactions of living in a world like the world we live in. A world where terrible things happen to good people, where you can't protect the people you love because there are things that are beyond your control, where you can work your tail off and do everything right and still have disaster strike. That's a difficult world. That's a worrisome world. And so Christ says, yeah, yeah. Unbelievers worry and fret and seek the comforts of this world. But you, beloved, have God. You have access to your creator. And Jesus repeats this line from his teaching on prayer. I don't know if you saw this or caught this. He reminds us, Jesus sees you and knows you. He already knows what you need. You don't live in a world of uncertainty. You live in a world that's held in the palm of the hand of your creator who sees you and notices you and cares for you and knows what you need. Because this all comes back to this concept of trust. Trust. Your worry, your anxiety, your fear, guys, those are natural responses to the uncertainty and suffering of this cursed world. But the kingdom of God says you are not owned by this cursed world. You are not stuck in this cursed world. You are not even seeking this cursed world. Jesus' people are seeking the kingdom. Because they're seeking the kingdom, they can trust the Father who knows them, who sees them, who cares for them. And I think that's why the text ends the way it does. Read with me in 33 and 34. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Seek the kingdom. Don't trust the fleeting treasures of this world to protect you and don't wallow in fear and worry. Instead, give yourself wholeheartedly to the kingdom of God. He is your provider. He will care for you. And Jesus ends with this amazingly unexpected twist that I think is so important for us. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough of its own troubles. Now hold on just a second, Jesus. I'm not sure if you've been listening to your entire teaching up to this point, but the reality that tomorrow has enough troubles of its own, that just happens to be the exact thing I'm worried about. That's why I'm worried. Because I've thought about it and I thought, eh, tomorrow will probably also have troubles. I've had a hard time with today's troubles. If tomorrow has them also, that will be rough. That's where my anxiety comes from, is the uncertainty of the future and my lack of control to actually provide for myself and those I love in an uncertain future. And Jesus says, yeah, I know, it's nuts. But just don't worry about it. Live today, live right now. Today has enough trouble. So give yourself over to the work of the kingdom right now. Look at God's provision in your life right now. Seek God's presence. Remember his love. Remember how trustworthy he is right now. Give your attention to that. Tomorrow will take care of itself. It'll come and it'll have it. You'll find out. The God who is trustworthy today will be trustworthy tomorrow as well. This is the story of the manna, right? God gives the manna. But the manna rots if you keep it overnight. Israel had to go back out and get new manna every morning, new manna every day, daily bread from Christ. God provided for the depths of their needs, the most intimate of their needs. But he did it day by day by day by day by day. And here's the reason, guys. Because God is actually trustworthy. Because the God of the universe actually sees you and cares about you. Because the God of the universe considers your needs and delights to give you caretaking love. Because this is the truth of it. Look, anxiety is very obviously real. 
Worry is very obviously real. Fear is very obviously real. Deep, dark sorrow and doubt and despair that go along with those things, they're very obviously real. Of course they are. One of the only guarantees in this life, in this broken and sinful world, is the present reality of suffering. You will lose. You will get hurt. Bad things will happen to you. And many of us know that from personal experience. And just in case you don't, the news is really, really good at reminding you of all the terrible things that are constantly happening, right? Worry is the natural response of one who lives in this broken world. But guys, the gospel of Jesus is the solution. It is. Regardless of how much fear, anxiety affects you, Christ is your solution. And the reason is simply because he is trustworthy. He's trustworthy to care for you. He has promised that he will meet your needs. In Christ, your eternity is secure. In Christ, your, guys, in Christ, your forever is secure. I, and I'm, I, I, listen, please don't, I'm not, downplaying the reality of suffering that many of us experience because there are some awful things that happen in this world. But I just want to tell you this. I promise you that 17 trillion years from now, when you're still living in perfect, complete, and total perfection, life, joy, freedom with Christ, the troubles of this world will not seem as weighty as they seem right now. And I say that knowing full well that some of you guys have been to some dark places. But I promise you, the worst this world has to offer is not so evil, is not so dark that a few million centuries in perfection with Christ won't outweigh it. I promise you, in Christ, your forever is secure. Which means the worst this world has to throw at you can't actually break you, can't actually beat you, can't overpower the love, the grace, the gospel of Jesus on your behalf. Guys, his trustworthiness simply and purely weighs more than the very real and very scary potentials of a broken and sinful world, period. Now don't mishear me. Learning how to trust God, learning how to see his trustworthiness and his provision in the minutia of everyday life, guys, that is difficult, difficult. Submitting your fear to his trustworthiness may very well take some really intense healing. And depending on how deep anxiety, fear, worry, despair, sorrow has its claws in your soul, you very likely need more than a Sunday sermon. You very likely need some time of real, deep, raw, painful confession and prayer with a brother or sister in Christ you very likely need to pour yourself into real discipleship where you dig into the truth of scripture and see the power of the gospel overpowering the uncertainty of this world over and over and over again. You very, may very well likely need to get involved in gospel-centered counseling. So someone who has training in how the mind and soul interact with one another in the gospel can help hand you some tools to continue that work. Guys, medication, your doctor, whatever, like they all may be part of the plan, but hear this, guys. Your healing from fear and worry and anxiety and sorrow, no matter how hard it may be, no matter how long it will take, it's always going to point you back to Christ. The healing is always gonna point you back to the truth that Jesus is trustworthy and that because of that, you need not be owned by your fear and your worry and your anxiety. Because Jesus is good. First Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. You get to give him everything you worry about, even the dumb things, even the things that you know, saying them out loud, you're like, this one's kind of crazy you still get to bring them to Christ because he cares for you. And when you begin to really believe and experience the trustworthy care of your Jesus, as it will become joyful to bring your anxieties directly to him. Philippians 4 says, don't worry about anything, but in 
everything in your life through prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your request to God and the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Scripture tells us that when you actually cast your anxieties at the feet of Jesus, he gives you a peace that is beyond understanding. Let me tell you what that means. That means that whatever fear you're dealing with, God, I really think I might lose my job. God, I'm worried about our finances. God, I am burdened for my children who don't know you. God, the news has me terrified to go out in public and go to a movie theater or a mall. You cast your anxiety to Christ and he gives you a peace. And here's what's amazing about the peace of Christ. You still live in the cursed and broken world. Your circumstance is still there. The world is still scary, it's still uncertain. And yet Christ gives you peace anyway. He's so trustworthy, he's so good, he's so present. His eternal promise to you is so powerful that you go, whoa, whoa. My circumstance didn't go away. Your peace is just more powerful than my circumstance. It's beyond my understanding. And it moves us, it moves us to walking in freedom. I'm gonna end us with an image from a theologian I love. One of the most influential Baptist theologians of all time was a guy named John Bunyan. Uh, and he wrote this book called Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read that book, you should. Uh, it should be on your list. In fact, this is actually the baptism we gift, gift we give out here at Emmanuel. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, you should. It's this allegory. It's a narrative story that tells the story of a man named Pilgrim and his journey from the city of destruction to the celestial kingdom. And every character and every scene in the book points to some aspect of the Christian life of discipleship. It's brilliant, it's worth your time. You should, you should find one in modern English because it's a little Shakespearean, but you should find one and you should read it. It's very good. Anyway, Bunyan has this unique and I think really helpful take on the Christian's experience of fear and anxiety. So he essentially says, anxiety, fear, worry, despair, and sorrow are all married together. They all go together <clears throat> and they're all common experiences to all believers. He says, if you're following Christ, you should expect them. And you should expect them to come together into your life. The world is cursed. Living in it's hard. It's painful. It's normal that we would worry. It's normal that we would despair. The task for the Christian is not to not experience those things. It's when you experience them to learn how to take those experiences and submit them to Christ. And so in his story of Pilgrim, this idea actually comes up twice. I think both themes are helpful in terms of landing us out today and giving us kind of a thought to lend that, to, to to apply this. See, early in his journey, Pilgrim is traveling through the woods and he comes upon a swamp and the swamp is aptly named. It's called the Swamp of Despondency. And he knows there are stepping stones in the swamp to get him from one side to the other. But he begins to fret and worry that he'll miss one or not see it or his foot will slip. And the minute he becomes obsessed with kind of worrying about it, then it happens and his foot slips and he falls into this swampy quicksand and he starts to sink and he's dying. And he panics and he freaks out, and then he just gives up. And he goes, well, I tried, tried to follow Christ. It didn't work. I guess now I die. And then another believer comes along and sees him and grabs him by the hand and pulls him out. And there's this beautiful scene where he goes, hey, didn't you know there were stepping stones in the swamp you could have stepped on? And he goes, yeah, I knew about them. I just missed them. And he goes, oh man, bad idea. <laughs> I love that part of the book. Anyway, What's amazing, what I love about that is that it's this reminder that there is something so holy and sacred about the community of Christ that, that speaks into our experience of anxiety, fear, sorrow, despair. These things were conquering pilgrim until a brother in Christ comes along and just goes, hey, what are you doing? Don't do that. And then they get up and they walk together. They actually journey together for the rest of the book. It's really beautiful. And it's there kind of this picture of Christian community and how we lift one another up and challenge each other. And so I encourage you for that for two reasons. The first one is this, guys. You need to genuinely consider today your faithful presence in the life of brothers and sisters is part of God's working in them to free them from anxiety and worry and fear. Your encouragement, your prayer, your presence, God may be using you as the helping hand to get someone out of the swamp of their anxieties. And by the way, for those of us who are right now feeling conquered by your sorrow, your fear, your worry, beloved, lean into your community. Lean into your community. Spend time with your brothers and sisters. There is encouragement. There is freedom to be found. Do not give up. 
Later in their journey, Pilgrim and his friends spend some time with Jesus, and Jesus gives them some gifts for their journey. And as they journey, they eventually accidentally wander off the straight and narrow path, and they find themselves captured by a giant named Despair. And Despair locks them in his basement dungeon and spends four days starving them and keeping water from them and beating them and telling them to just kill themselves. It's terrible. And they get... They, they day by day lose any sense that they'll be rescued, lose any sense of hope. And they get to the point where they're sitting together debating whether or not they should just end their lives to end their misery and their suffering. You know, I guess this journey wasn't worth it. I guess it just didn't get there. And there's this amazing moment in the story where as they're sitting there and they go, no, 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 no. We're so, we're so worried, we've lost all hope. We're so worried about the idea that, that no help will ever come, that we've completely given up. We can't do that. Christ has brought us thus far. He has to bring us past this. And we can't, I can't see a way for us to get past this, but, but God has to have something in mind for us. And right when they have that revelation, Pilgrim remembers that one of the gifts Jesus gave him was a key called the key of promises. And he reaches in his pocket and pulls out the key of promises and it unlocks the locks and it unlocks the door and they leave and they continue on their journey. It's really beautiful. The promises of Christ, the promises of Jesus unlocked their shackles, freed them from the place they were trapped, freed them from despair, freed them from their worry. Guys, it is by trusting the promises of Jesus to his church that they found their way out of darkness and beloved the key is the promises of Jesus. He is our comforter. He is our caretaker in a scary and painful world. Every day, beloved, you will have troubles. Every day you will have pain. Every day you will have anxieties. We will only be free from anxiety when we cast them to Christ, which means trusting him. Beloved, you have the key. And the key is believing his promises. So what is Jesus' promise for you today? Chris, if you want to come up. I'm gonna invite us to pray in just a minute. The promise of Jesus for you today, beloved, is simply this. This is in Matthew 11. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly, I am humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light, beloved. The promise of Christ is trust me. <laughs> I will take care of you. Beloved, come to him. Even right now, I'll invite you. We're gonna take just a minute before we take communion in our time. We're gonna take a minute just to be in prayer. Find some space in your seat, however that looks like for you. If you can do that in your chair, if you wanna get on your knees, if you wanna grab one of the pastors, I wanna invite you to take a minute to be in prayer with Christ and consider his promise to you. Consider his caretaking love for you. But cast your cares to Christ. See how he loves you. See how he cares for you. Take a minute to be with your Lord and then we'll end our time together.